Welcome to the Preach and Persuade podcast. I am Sam Parada, and I am here with... Adam Nesvold. Yes, the only two people that have ever been talking on this show. <laughs> no new people yet. Uh, we are currently in episode number seven on the podcast, which is part three uh, as we have been talking about the doctrine of election. So we have started uh, episode number four. We started, a, you could call it a series on the doctrines of grace, or what some people understand is the doctrines of Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism. And uh, the first episode in that, that mini-series was on total depravity, which is the first point of Calvinism, uh, represented by the T in tulip. Uh, then we moved into unconditional election, represented by the U in tulip, the second point of Calvinism. And we are currently in episode, you could say, number three, or, or part three of this talk or this discussion on election. And election is... A big, big, big topic. That's why we are spending so much time on it. There's so much to discuss. There's so much scripture on it, which is actually really helpful. Uh, but that means that there's some more time that we have to talk about the scriptures. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot said about it. Especially in Romans 9, and that's what we went through last week. Uh, but this 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 doctrine of election, again, and I mentioned it last last episode, is not a, it's not a new discussion. People have been talking about and and wrestling with this doctrine for centuries, literally since the very beginning. Uh, uh, The first century church was wrestling through these things, and that's why Paul, you know, displayed it so clearly to us. Uh, This would be something that would be misunderstood, and and thankfully we got very clear teaching on it in in Romans and in Ephesians and other places throughout Scripture, so, so that we can actually come to understand what's what's true about election. Um, But maybe you're familiar with one of the most famous theologians of history, and his name is Jonathan Edwards. So he was was a Puritan. Uh, He lived in America, and he was maybe the biggest defender of the doctrines of Calvinism to ever live on this earth. Uh, Augustine was a big defender. Obviously, John Calvin himself was a big defender of these doctrines he saw in Scripture, and then after Calvin, eventually they were named after Calvin because uh, he gave such a clear defense of him in his work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. But then, a couple hundred years later, after Calvin came Edwards, and Edwards is really considered to be maybe one of the the brightest minds that America has ever produced. And this was before America was even a country. Um, he didn't he didn't live long enough to see the Revolutionary War. But nonetheless, he was he was brilliant. He was one of the most brilliant philosophers really ever to live. And he says this, so as he uh, was ex- experiencing salvation when he was younger, uh, I'm going to read a quote from him. He goes, I was brought to seek salvation in a manner that I never was was before. I felt the spirit depart with all things in the world for an interest in Christ. My concern continued and prevailed with many exercising thoughts and inward struggles, but it yet never seemed to be proper to express that concern by the name of terror from my childhood and by my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in choosing whom he would be who and choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased it used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me but i remember the time very well when i seemed to be convinced and fully satisfied as to the sovereignty of god and his justice in thus eternally disposing of men according to his sovereign pleasure, but I never could give in an account how or by what means. I was thus convinced, not in the least imagining at the time, nor for a long time after, that there was an extraordinary influence of God's spirit in it. But only that I now, but only that now I saw further, and my reason apprehended the justice and reasonableness of it. However, my mind rested in it, 
and it put an end to all those cavils and objections. And he goes on to say, And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind with respect to the doctrines of God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it. In the most absolute sense, in God's showing mercy to whom he will show mercy and hardening whom he will. But I have often, since that first conviction, had quite another kind of sense of God's sovereignty that I had then. I have often since had not only a conviction, but a delightful conviction. The doctrine has very often appeared exceedingly pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. But my first conviction was not so. The first instance that I remember of, of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading these words in 1 Timothy um, chapter 1, verse 17, which says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Uh, amen. So we'll stop after that, but he continues to go on. So the point really is, is like the guy that is known throughout history to be the biggest defender of the doctrines of Calvinism when he was a baby Christian or before he became a Christian, really wrestled with this doctrine. He says he hated it. He says he, he despised it, really. He, he couldn't imagine how God would choose who he would save and, 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 and not save others. Uh, he just couldn't understand it. But then when he came to understand it, when he came to see it in the scriptures, it eventually became the sweetest and most delightful doctrine of all the doctrines. And he ended up writing the book called The Freedom of the Will, which is maybe quite possibly the greatest defense for this doctrine that's ever been written. Um, if you are kind of a good reader or have a comprehension level beyond most, I would recommend it to you. Because <laughs> I kid you not, I kid you not, this guy, Jonathan Edwards, some of his sentences are a page and a half long or even longer. They just are like the definition of a run-on sentence. He just keeps going. How these old Puritan writers use punctuation is unbelievable. It's commas and semicolons galore. Just They just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. But they're such logical and linear thinkers that... They don't want to break the chain of logic, I guess, so they don't even start a new sentence. <laughs> but that's just kind of uh, just to say that, you know, intuitively, this doesn't seem right. And it kind of does rub against our own intuition. Just one more story before we really get into it. Uh, I was on the campus of NDSU, North Dakota State University, yesterday doing evangelism, doing my apologetic booth. And I got into a really good discussion. Uh, my friend and I, Mitch, got in a good discussion with a guy who uh, he, identi he eventually identified it as an agnostic. Uh, but I, I, I told him, like, we talked to him for three hours. I told him, like, halfway through, I'm like, I still haven't been able to peg you. Like, what are you? Like, what do you identify as? And he said, I would say probably agnostic. But we talked about the doctrine of election for a considerable portion of that discussion, and he just could not conceive of how that God could be just in that, or how this is possible, or does not not make God the author of evil. And he really didn't like that idea that this is what's true, uh, or what the scriptures put forward. So it really does, to the dead man, or to the unregenerate man, we hate it. The flesh hates this doctrine. The flesh hates this idea that we're not autonomous, and that we can't do what we want to do. It really does. And so when we were converted, you know, we still have a lot of fleshliness about us, even though now we have faith. So there is certain doctrines that are 
we're going to really have to wrestle against more than others. And I think election is one of them. And that's probably why it's been so hotly contested. Uh, the love of God isn't really contested much. Right. <laughs> well, I think uh, Dr. John MacArthur said in a number of his sermons, he said, this isn't a doctrine that we would believe in if it wasn't in the Bible. Right. The only reason that we believe in it is because it is in the Bible. It is so contrary to man's thoughts and man's desires that it, we would we would never cook it up ourselves. Right. Yeah. And so if you have been listening to this series, we uh, last week we worked through really just about the whole chapter of Romans 9. Uh, and that is considered to be maybe the biggest defense for the doctrine of election, maybe the most significant chapter in Scripture on it. Uh, so we thought it'd be important that we go through the whole thing, but we didn't finish it. So we're going to finish chapter 9, and then we're going to go into chapter 10, which is really what we want to talk about today, because we have been saying that we want to talk about uh, we want to talk about evangelism. Why do we evangelize uh, if God has just chosen who we would save? Why do we tell people about Jesus? Why do we share the gospel? Why do we labor at this work if if it's set in stone? That's the big question that we want to answer today. So let's just uh, finish up Romans 9, get into Romans 10. Sure. So it, we left off last week at Romans 9, uh, 24, 25. And what we see is, as I mentioned really a couple weeks ago, we see that in the second half of Romans 8, Paul introduces this idea of election. And then he spends the next three chapters defending uh, that stance. And he does so in a very logical way. As we saw last week, he anticipates a question. He anticipates a a challenge or pushback, as as we might say to it so like he says what shall we say then like in verse 14 is there injustice on god's part we talked about that last week of course not and then why does god still find fault in verse 19 um for who can resist god's will of course but then who are we to answer back to god and uh, again we talked about that last week but we see paul laying out all of these questions and one of them is exactly what sam said that we'll get to in chapter 10 is well well why evangelize then why even do it mm-hmm uh, but before we get there, um, there is something else that Paul is talking about here in Romans 9 uh, within the context. We talked about at the beginning of Romans 9 how he is very sorrowful that he that, that not all of Israel will be saved. Not all um, Jews will be saved. Right, right. And he would he would be willing to even give up his own salvation— and be damned for eternity mm-hmm. if it would mean the salvation mm-hmm. of all of Israel. Uh, and so Paul kind of comes back and talks about that again after verse 25. And we're just going to summarize it because it's important to understand, but I, I think for our conversation on election, it's not important to go verse by verse sure. um, to, get, uh, to get what Paul is saying here. Sure. Uh, so Paul is addressing this point that, Look, just because you're a Jew does not make you a member of the elect. Right. That the gospel will be spread to Gentiles as well, and you have to put your faith in Christ in in order to be saved. And we'll see Paul arrive at that point in chapter 10. So Paul quotes in chapter 9, verse 25, he begins to quote Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. 
And so what Paul is saying there is that God is going to call Gentiles who are not members of Israel to be his people. And then, of course, Isaiah, in verse 27, he quotes the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So um, God promised Abraham descendants uh, that are innumerable, right. as many as the sands in the sea right. or the stars in the sky. And Paul says, yeah, so that's true, and God delivered on that promise, but not all of them are going to be saved. Right. A remnant of them will be saved. Right. Um, which Paul comes back to that remnant in verse or in chapter eleven, right? And there's a lot of eschatology involved in that, which is part of the reason why uh, we want to focus. We want to stay focused on election, right? And then uh, in verse thirty, um, we begin to see that Paul is talking about um, Israel's unbelief. So, what then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have a, have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. And why didn't they? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. For as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Paul, again, is quoting the Old Testament and he's saying that uh, that God has put a stumbling stone in front of Israel, which is the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and the other laws there uh, that are in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And that that stumbling block has caused Israel to focus in on this uh, salvation by works. Right. And that the Gentiles are accepting this salvation by faith, right? It's really, it's really this. These last, yeah, a couple of verses of ch- chapter nine is very rich with soteriology. Like mm-hmm. they've obtained a righteousness by faith, like, but they didn't pursue it. Like, right. and and that isn't that not what we've been talking about? This fact that we're dead in our sins, going our own way, doing our own thing, living lawless, rebellious, wicked lives, and a messenger comes to us, and we'll talk about this in Romans ten brings the gospel by God's sovereign grace. If we're an elect, he regenerates our dead, wicked hearts through this gospel and gives us righteousness as a gift, totally as a gift by grace. And it's like, <laughs> we didn't pursue it. We didn't seek after God. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what we said with, yep. with total depravity? No one seeks after God. No one understands. All have turned aside. Together, together they have become worthless. So now you can just imagine the Jews seeing these Gentiles coming to faith, obtaining a righteousness that they did not pursue and that the Jews thought they were not worthy of. These are Gentiles. They're outside of of this bloodline from Abraham. Like, how on earth is this possible? Like, are we not the chosen people of God? You can just imagine, like, almost the rage they feel. Like, this is out of control. Mm-hmm. But that was it. The law, they, they stumbled over the law. They thought that they had to pursue righteousness by works right and this is i mean i'm gonna say it this is really 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 close to catholic doctrine like if not catholic doctrine 
this idea that we pursue righteousness by the sacraments or by works, by taking of the mass, by uh, by confession and penance, by the sacrament of baptism and marriage and those things, we earn righteousness, we pursue righteousness. That's very Jewish. That's very workspace. That's exactly what really is being taught here. And and if you if you wanted to just a different study if you wanted to look at the book of Galatians where Paul really talks about how the Judaizers were going back to works of the law going back to like you need to be circumcised too uh, adding works to faith and Paul totally gives the greatest and harshest rebuke like let you be accursed if you if you preach any other gospel this is a different gospel and we talked about that in episode one with the gospel and then false gospels in episode two so. If you wanted to compare Catholic doctrine, if you wanted to create a table, let's say, and compare Catholic doctrine with what the Judaizers was doing, were doing, it's almost exactly the same. Like, what they're doing, it's very parallel. Very, very, very parallel. And so that's scary. And, and there's, there's a lot of people that are stumbling over this, this works-based idea. Mm-hmm. They're, they're tripping over it. Uh, we're, we're saved totally by grace, uh, and in, in, in faith, we're given righteousness as a gift. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Yep. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with with um, working your way to it. And it wasn't, like, the cross was quite possibly the biggest stumbling stone here. The the idea that that we're saved by our ethnicity or we're saved by our works. And now the fact that Jesus, God himself, came down in the form of a man and died for the sins of, of, of the world really proves that we are unable to do it on our own. Mm-hmm. So think of how offensive that would have been to the Jews. I mean, eventually they killed them, right. <laughs> really, for saying such a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's, it's really proof that, no, you can't do it on your own. You can't work yourself to salvation. You can't. I have to do it for you. I have to live the perfect life that you can't live, Jews. Mm-hmm. And he did it. And then we're given his, his righteousness as a gift. Through faith. So, yeah, all that kind of just wraps up chapter 9. you have any more words about it, Adam? Um, maybe just looking at Philippians 3 real quick, uh, just to give you the context of the character of Paul who is writing this, uh, Paul is giving a warning in Philippians 3 about looking out for evildoers within the church and uh, he talks about how uh, we are, in, in verse 3 of Philippians 3, he talks about, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in the Christ, or and glory in Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. So he's not putting any, he's saying that we don't put any any confidence in works, is, is his point. And then he goes on to say, though I myself have reason for confidence, in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I have gained, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So, you know, Paul is saying, look, if somebody could possibly work their way to salvation under Hebrew law. It was him. It was it was him. That, that that's what he's saying. He's like, it was me. And I can't do it. Because look at what I'm trying to teach you. It can't be done. Right. 
and all the more that means we have to be sovereignly chosen mm-hmm. in order to experience salvation. We can't do it on our own. We can't choose God. We can't work our way. We can't reason our way to God. That's the whole point. Um, and so today we 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 don't necessarily get caught up on this Jewish ethnicity thing in the Christian circles, but we still want to believe that we have some role in this. Like, oh, but I still want to. I think I'm able. Mm-hmm. I think I'm able to choose. Yep. Yeah, isn't I mean isn't isn't that fundamentally what it comes down to is not a, a choice for God pre uh pre um regeneration a work. And yeah. Ultimately it kind of is, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yep. And so that's that's a scary that's a scary reality. And like I like I like to say this that Arminians and maybe I've said this already, but they're on they're on a lake with very thin ice, very, very thin ice. And at any moment, they're either going to fall into universalism or they're going to fall into works-based salvation. And some are able to go their whole life as an Arminian and not fall in by God's grace. I don't know how. But some take it too far and take their 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 wonky theology to its logical conclusion. And if you take it to its logical conclusion, you're either going to fall into our, our universalism or, or works-based salvation. And both are... Horrible. Mm-hmm. Any doctrine pushed to its extreme is really bad. Yeah, certainly. But yeah, that brings us to Romans 10, which is another dynamite chapter. Right. Good grief. <laughs> Paul's really wrapping them off here. Yep. <laughs> so Paul is really continuing his thought from, you know, chapter 9, verse 33, right in uh, 10, 1. Yeah, he, he starts it much like he starts the beginning of chapter 9. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because he, he repeats himself. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So again, he's talking about the Israelites. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Mm-hmm. Again, a continuation of that soteriology that he wrapped up with in chapter 9. But isn't yeah. it interesting, too, like, and this is what we're going to be asking, like, why evangelize and, and why pray? But we see right here that after Paul just defended so boldly the doctrine of election, he goes, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's praying that God would save them. Mm-hmm. So after, like, Paul is defending this doctrine, but he's he's also saying that he's praying for their salvation. Right. And obviously we would say that makes sense because if it's up to their own choice and they're so steeped in their works-based ideology, they're not going to they're not going to come to faith. They're not going to trust in the righteousness of Christ. They want to work their way to salvation. Right. And I mean, they're they're. This is another thing that MacArthur says, but... We like MacArthur. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and th- this is kind of humorous. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, so uh, so understand that. But people understand, I- intrinsically, all believers understand that it is God who does this work because when you want somebody to be saved, you don't walk up to them and shake them and just say, well, you just <laughs> believe, believe. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you pray to God for their salvation. Right. What so, is that? Right. You're asking you're, you're, when you make that prayer, you're literally asking God to make a choice. Yeah. You're, you're seeing God like, supernaturally go against their own will right, right. now 
and come upon them with your will and save them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that not an infringement I mean, on their autonomy if they are autonomous? Right. Setting aside that, like, like setting aside all all of the do- doctrinal debates, when you make that prayer, God, will you please? Um, bring this person to salvation, or will you please give this person faith? Like, I mean, think about the language that that you use, yeah. And what you're really asking for is God to intercede, yeah, and and in in their lives, God to enter their lives and perform an act, right? You know, you don't go and ask that person to perform an act, and may, maybe you do. I mean, maybe maybe there are some people that are just that bold that will walk up and say, "No, you need to believe," and but. Uh, generally, we when we pray to God, we're and we're asking for salvation. We're asking God to do that work. And it's 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 a very it's a really and this will transition well into this doc this idea of evangelism or why the theology of evangelism, because you know we've all experienced in our life. If you're a Christian, you've experienced someone in your life, maybe a family member, that is so hardened and so resistant against Christianity and so resistant against anything Bible at all. They hate it. They don't want anything to do with it. They're so cut off from it. And you realize this person will never choose God. They hate God and it's visible. And they've made up their mind. Mm -hmm. So if God is not able to supernaturally come upon their heart and soften it, then they're doomed. So why even try? But we have this hope that even the hardest of hearts can be softened by God's sovereign will. And if they are an elect, certainly, no matter how hard they seem to be right now, God will humble them and soften them, and he will bring them to faith. And is that not what happened to Paul as an example? He says he is an example. Mm -hmm. Look at me as an example of of the type of person that can come to faith. I was so set in my way that I was literally, like he was literally, Paul was literally going on the road to Damascus to get, uh, you know, basically a letter or whatever to continue to persecute the Christian church. Mm -hmm. Like he was on his way to continue to kill Christians and persecute Christians. And so set in his mind, so set that this is what was right. Yeah, he calls it zeal in Philippians. Zeal. He had zeal for God. And God, out of nowhere, Jesus showed up, revealed himself to him, and it was instant. Yep. Instant submission. He calls him Lord. Unbelievable. So that's the hope. Like, it doesn't matter who is in your life and how crazy hard hardened their heart seems to be. God can soften it. And our prayers are powerful. They work. Mm-hmm. And God does answer our prayers. That's something we can trust. And he has the power to answer our prayers. Um, Yeah, so yeah, let's keep going through Romans 10. We've, verse 5, are we at now? Yep. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? So I want to pause there because it's a lot to think about. What, What Paul is saying here is that when Moses writes about the law in the first five books of the Bible, uh, particularly Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, uh, he is saying that if you do this law, you will live by this law. And, but 
we say, because of righteousness by faith, we say, look, you don't say in your heart, well, who's going to go up to heaven to send Christ down to save people? And who's going to go into the abyss to raise Christ up from the dead? Because nobody has that power. Mm-hmm. Our our salvation depends on Christ, just like verse 4 said, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So our salvation hinges on Christ. And it, one of the things that, that you can kind of think about here is that what what Paul is arguing is that we have a tendency to think that we are more righteous than we are and that God is less righteous than he is. Yeah. As if as if we could attain some kind of righteousness that is equivalent to God's. Mm-hmm. Because that's what it would take, folks. If if we were able to be righteous enough to be saved through works, we would have to be able to go to heaven and send Christ to earth to die for our sins. <laughs> Or, conversely, we would have to be powerful enough, like righteous enough in our lives in order to go into the abyss, into death, and say, Christ, go ahead and rise from the dead. Right. And that's what Paul's saying here. It's unattainable, completely unattainable. Right. So then in verse 8, but what does it say, uh, speaking about the righteousness based on faith? It says, the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Mm. So you should probably stop there. Yeah. (laughs) Lots to unpack. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you... Where do you want to start? (laughs) Well, I think... Uh, you, the key verses are are nine through thirteen. Yeah, here. absolutely. I mean, this is this is the gospel. Yeah, right. And, and we 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 may have even talked about it before. But look, if if you want to be a Christian, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you will be saved. Right. That's it. That's that's all it takes. Right. There is no. There is no works that you have to do. You don't have to uh, go out and, like, it's snowing right now, so you don't have to go out and shovel driveways to make everybody happy. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to go to church so many times a day. You don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to whip yourself like Martin Luther did (laughs) um, to try to punish yourself for sin. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, you, you don't have to do any of those things to be saved. You have to submit yourself to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. Right. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. Sure. And it just seems like, okay, okay. It seems like Paul is telling me that this is all I have to do. Like, I can just say, yeah, uh, Jesus is Lord. Like, and I I believe that he, you know, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead. I, I'm, I'm saved, Adam? Like, that's all it takes? Well... Like I've seen, I've seen thousands of people do that, and 
they're not safe. They still live a pagan life. They still live in their sin. Like, right. What's going on here? Well, when when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and and then the the key word here is and, right? So it's linked to believing in your heart. So this this isn't some surface level belief like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, God raised Jesus from the dead. Yeah. Right. It's it's believing truly to your core right that god did that work right and also this confess with your mouth that that jesus is lord is not just like okay well yeah jesus is jesus is god i'll i'll accept that yeah. it's it's submitting your life to jesus christ as your master right you know that's that the the word lord here in in the greek is often um is often also translated as master sure like, yeah yeah, absolutely. And so maybe th- this is similar, you could say, to maybe uh, John three sixteen, where somebody want to say they say, well, if you believe in Jesus, then you're saved. Uh, so that means it's your choice. Like you're choosing God if you're if you're believing, you're confessing. It's your choice. It's your work. It's it's your volition. It's your will being acting. Uh, and and does this not contradict what Paul just told us on the doctrine of election? No, it it doesn't, and that's that's where the mystery comes in. Sure, because anybody who 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 has uh, salvation, who has proclaimed Jesus Christ as their Lord, and truly believes in Jesus Christ's work on the cross as deity, and that God raised him from the dead, uh, they all will tell you about their testimony about how they came to salvation, and. And in all of our experience, it's it's a situation where I believed. I didn't believe, and then and then I did this. Or this thing happened, and I chose to believe. Yeah, like we all say that. Yeah, I I made the choice to believe, uh, but that's not what the doctrine of election is talking about. Sure, uh, and I think we see this displayed with the disciples. So uh, you know, just take Peter for example. Jesus walked up to Peter and said, follow me. Mm-hmm. And Peter did it. Yeah. Peter, like, if you look at what Jesus said, Jesus didn't say, hey, will you please follow me? Right. Jesus said, follow me. That is a command. Right. Jesus issued a command, and Paul resp- or Peter responded by choosing to follow him. But did Peter really have a choice at that point? Because the God of the universe gave him a command. Right. Summoned his soul to mm-hmm. it, and and this is the interesting thing. This is again uh, hermeneutical principles as well. We're at this point in Romans chapter ten, and again, the chapters were numbers and verse numbers were put in quite a while later. So mm-hmm. it's not like Paul wrote this letter with chapters. <laughs> uh, and maybe it's even helpful not to to get rid of the chapters, just to see that this is one continuous argument being made here. Yep. So we can't forget what he's already been saying. Like, we can't forget what he said in Romans 3. We can't forget what he said in Romans 1. We can't forget that we're all unrighteous, that we all, that no one seeks after God, that we all, that we can't remember, we can't forget in Romans 10, two chapters earlier, how it says those in the flesh, uh, they they do not submit to God. Indeed, they cannot submit to God. They're, they're enmity, enmity with God. They're hostile. They're totally against God. So, yes, we we full heartedly agree with what Paul is saying here that those who believe in Christ will be saved and 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 call upon the name of the Lord they will be saved and believe on him 
and confess that he is Lord. We totally agree with that. Yes, mm-hmm. it's absolutely true. But the question is, who are those who will confess and believe? Right, and that that is answered back in Romans 8. Exactly. You know, in in verse 28, or I'm sorry, verse 29. The golden chain. Yeah, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. I'm just going to stop right there because there's that word justified, which Paul uses again here in mm-hmm. Romans 10, mm-hmm. when he in Romans 10, 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified. Right. But this was already... This was already done because God called you. Yeah, God is justifying you. Right, and it is with your heart that you believe and and are justified. Uh, but that is because of the work of God in calling you, which exactly. is what election is all about. Exactly. So we can't just. There's no contradiction here, and it's linear, and it's an argument, mm-hmm. and we have to remember what Paul has already said. We can't just have amnesia here, and look, you know, right? Just can't just forget. So. Yes, those who do believe, those who do confess, those who do call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But only those, uh, only those who have been sovereignly regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, will be able to call on God and believe on Him and confess that He is Lord of their life. Yep, and submit to Him. So that's that's what we learn. So we can't just, you know, there there is no contradiction. And if you right. if you remember the argument Paul is making, there is there it's you should not get to a point where you think there is one. Right. But we tend to forget, and partly too, we tend to take verses so we so easily take verses out of context. We just pluck verses out. Right. And we reread them. Maybe we have a devotion. I'm gonna go on a little rant here about devotionals. Like, there's some really good devotionals, certainly, because the person writing the devotional is a, is a true exegete, meaning if they take a verse and they write a devotional on it, they're only going to be writing after they have taken the whole context surrounding that verse into thought. So the writing as the writing is, you know, contextually really what this verse means. But there's so many devotionals out there that just pluck a verse out and they just write about how it makes them feel, how that single verse makes them feel or what they think about it. And they take it right out of context, and they and they twist it. And I mean, Sarah Young's devotional is one of those that is horrible. It's a horrible devotional. Don't read it. And I guarantee you, if you're listening to this, you probably have it on your coffee table. Almost almost every woman I know who's a Christian has a Sarah Young dev- devotional. It's 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 not good. It's not exegetical. It's not. It, she's just going off of her own feelings, her own intuitions. And and she's I can't even explain to you. She does some weird things. Not good. So we can't take verses out of context. Verses are links in a chain. This giant chain, this giant argument, and we can't really Piper says we can't think about them as pearls, like mm-hmm. one pearl that we get to admire and has all this beauty in and of itself. And certainly some verses are so just amazing that in a sense they have some pearlesque qualities to it, but. In all reality, it's actually more importantly a link in a chain, right? Uh, Especially in the Book of Romans. Especially in the Book of Romans, because the Book of Romans is one argument that's laid on top of another, right? So, I mean, sometime for fun, it, it, just go through the Book of Romans, and 
look at how many times Paul uses the words for or therefore Logical at the beginning of a words. sentence. Yep. Yep. Just to connect the argument. So it's important to remember that chapter 10 of Romans falls right in the middle of Paul's discourse on election, which goes all the way through the end of chapter 11. Yeah. This is a continuous argument. Yeah. Can't take it out of context. Can't take these verses out of context. Gotta take into account yep. what's already been said. Yeah. And he, have to. And he's doing the same thing that he did in, in chapter 9, is he's anticipating arguments. Yep. And so he's he's saying these things because he's anticipating saying people saying, well, but what about what about righteousness by faith? Mm-hmm. If God chooses, then then where does faith come in? Well, that, that's a question that he's answering right now. Yeah. So, okay. So we ended at verse thirteen. Now we're really going to get into like here it is. Right. The evangelism where evangelism fits in. Right. Because Paul then anticipates the next argument. Right. So if everyone who calls on the name of Jesus is saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Yeah. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So if election is true, if, if this concept of, of election is true that Paul has been talking about, uh, Paul, Paul is saying, okay, well, now, now you're going to ask me, well, if, they, if, all they, if all people have to do is not worry about election for their own salvation and just call on the name of Jesus, how are they supposed to do that? Because you're not going to evangelize them because God chose them. Yeah. That's that's what Paul is, is expecting here. And that is probably the primary argument against election is, well, if election is true, you don't have to evangelize because God's going to bring them to salvation anyway. Yeah. And so this is the answer to that because Paul says, uh, no, you actually have to evangelize. Yeah. Um. So uh, he goes on in, in verse 14, And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So I want to work through this kind of backwards. Okay, yeah. Because Paul is is asking a chain of questions. And if we start here at the end of the chain of questions and it, like in verse 15 and how are they to preach unless they are sent. So this all starts with somebody sending out somebody else. Right. Uh you know, we see this today in churches. Churches send missionaries yeah. or churches send pastors. Um or you know, it, it's somewhere right. uh, somebody you know decides to become a pastor, and they are sent out from a bo- from a church body. Yeah, that's the most typical form. Yep. Um, and on a smaller scale, in our own lives, you know, we are sent out all the time from our churches, um, or just by Jesus Christ in the Great Commission that says, "Go out and make disciples." Yeah. So we have all been sent, and we should continue in our churches to send people because that's step one. And then those people who are sent have to preach. And it's it's not that Paul is saying, look, get behind a pulpit and preach. You can you can preach the gospel to right. your loved ones in your living room, in your car, or in your day-to-day life, or to strangers right. um, that, that you encounter. But those people have to preach. Right. And then, because they preached, now people have heard the gospel. Because they, they preached, so we're kind of backing into verse 14 now. Yeah. 
And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Well, someone has to preach to them, and then they will hear. Yep. And then having heard, then they can believe in Jesus Christ. And this is the kind of belief that's like, okay, I believe that Jesus Christ existed because somebody has told me about the life of Jesus Christ. Right. So I believe that Jesus Christ is a person. And then uh, and then, then they now that they believe in, that Jesus Christ existed, they can call on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. And then that backs into uh, verse verse thirteen. So that that is our responsibility. That is a human responsibility in light of the doctrine of election, is to go out, send people, preach to people, let them hear hear the gospel, right? Let them believe in Jesus Christ, and then they can call on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. So, what is our role in election? It's to share the gospel. Right, and and he, here's the, here's the deal. Uh, I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said this. He said, "If I was able to lift up the shirt of somebody and see an E stamped to their stomach, I would only preach to them." Right, which is E for elect. Mm-hmm. But because that's not the case, I have to be faithful to preach to all creatures. And isn't the, this is the cool thing? This is the thing that motivates me the most in my evangelism is that. I I can't fail. I can go out with a boldness, with a courage, with a joy, and a and a readiness to go preach the gospel, knowing that if I, if the gospel lands on the ears of an elect, they're going to be saved. Right. It's it the doctrine of election is not an excuse to not evangelize. As a matter of fact, if you believe, even even if you believe in the doctrine of election, you think, well, I don't have to evangelize because God God chooses. Well, you have it wrong. You're not right. you're not you don't have a biblical understanding of this doctrine. Number one, Jesus commanded you to do it. Right. So we That's have enough. to do it. <laughs> there is no way around it. Even if you you're like, well, I don't like Paul. Well, Jesus said, go out and evangelize. And yeah. now here Paul is saying, go out and do it. Yep. You need to share the gospel. Right. And Paul is even saying it within this within this context of election, and he's and, and he's saying, "Look, this is important within our understanding of election." And it so and it's just like you said, it's a promise that when you evangelize, you will see fruit. You will see people yeah. come to Christ. Yeah, it's an it's so amazing. Like, and I've done quite a bit of training on evangelism, and you ask people, "What's what's your biggest fear?" or What's the biggest barrier barrier for you going out and evangelizing? And it's the fear of rejection. Right. It, that we hate. People hate being rejected. We hate it. We hate this idea that somebody is going to reject what I'm saying, reject my plea, reject my presentation. Uh, we hate this. It's it, We just don't like it. Mm-hmm. And so evangelism, if you've done it consistently— you get rejected actually quite a bit. Right. <laughs> like most people you run into uh, don't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus died for their sins. Most wide, people don't. Wide do that. is the road to destruction. Right. Why? Yeah, exactly. And narrow is the path. Narrow is the gate to everlasting life. So most people you do run into, you know, in some circ- in some cases there's revival breaks out and then you see tons of people coming in, mm-hmm. but that's rare. In most right. cases, that's pretty rare, and we haven't seen a revival in America for a while now. Uh, but in most cases, people do reject it, and that's f- that's that's fine because the doctrine of election tells us, don't worry, 
keep going because this is the means that God has ordained that mm-hmm. he would bring those who he has elected into the fold, into everlasting life. Keep pursuing this. Keep going and keep sharing the gospel because eventually if you're if you're consistent in it, in it enough, you will come across somebody who has an E stamped in their stomach. You know, they really right. don't. <laughs> and they will come to faith. Right. Because God has foreknown them. Mm-hmm. And it's like... And has called them. Yeah. It's like, it's an amazing thing. It's so motivating. And you can go into it with joy. Like, I don't have to fear rejection because I know that if they're not an elect, they will reject it. It's not me. Mm-hmm. It's not me. It's yeah. them. <laughs> and and, and like, really, they, they might be an elect and still reject mm-hmm. your, your potential offer, but, you know... It, uh, might, it uh, might be further an old, down the road. An old pastor of mine, uh, greatest preacher that I've ever um, had had the joy of, of being able to watch and listen to, he, he said that uh, there's one of three responses to the gospel. Either yes, no, or not right now. Yeah. And even, even if it's no or not right now, your evangelizing to that person might be uh, something that God uses, a seed that's planted, or it could be water on a seed that was previously planted by somebody else who shared the gospel with them, that eventually they will come to faith. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Um, I, I had a friend who, you know, I shared the gospel with them many times. Um, it was a roommate of mine, and that person... Uh, never came to faith on any of the times that I talked to them about it. Yeah. But when they talked to that very pastor afterwards, they, they walked out of it, that person's house, that pastor's house where we were meeting. And he's like, I, I accepted Jesus. Wow. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. And I was, I was overjoyed. Right. Like, um, you know, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't my work. Obviously it was God's work and it wasn't even my mouth at the time. Like I wasn't even the one sharing the gospel at that right, moment, right. but still such a joyous event. Right. And so, you know, you might even say, well, I'm not an evangelist. I don't, I don't have that, that spiritual gift. Look, I don't either. You know, Sam does. Sure. Sam very clearly does, but that's not a spiritual gift that I have, but we all have the responsibility to do it. Right. It's like, you know, some have the spiritual gift of faith, mm-hmm. but everybody has faith. Right. But there is, there's, t- you know, and evangelist is an interesting word. Uh, in Scripture, in New, in New Testament Scripture, we see the word evangelist. And the only place where evangelist is, you could say, defi- like, what is the work of an evangelist? There's only one place where it's actually described. And the work of an evangelist is described in Ephesians 4 as the one who equips the saints for the work of ministry. So there is more of like a, a called evangelist type, like a called preacher, a called pastor— a called shepherd type guy. So there is an evangelist like that. But then there's evangelism, mm-hmm. which is ju- which is sharing the gospel message with the intent of bringing somebody to faith and repentance. That is evangelism. We're all called to that. Right. Uh, so that is that is the work that we're all called to. Uh, here's another here's an, I'm going to give another a couple more passages just to kind of hammer this home. Another one is 2 Corinthians 2 starting in verse 14. Uh, Paul says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to lo- death and to other, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is fi- sufficient for these things? So he's, he's basically saying, uh, when we go out and share the gospel, God always leads us in triumphal procession. So it's always success. 
Like, you tend to think, oh, this person rejected the gospel. That's a failure. No. Paul says it's successful. Why is it successful? Because you spread the fragrance of the knowledge of God. You shared the gospel message, message, which is a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and actually glorifies him. So just sharing the message, whether it's accepted or not, is glorifying to God and is is a success. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's what Paul says, whether it's a message from death to death or life to life, whether you're sharing this message to somebody and actually what the message is doing to somebody who's who doesn't come to faith is it's a warning of future judgment. Right. And that's death to death. Right. Or it's a message of life to life, which is saying, hey, if you if you confess and, and believe and repent of your sins, you will have everlasting life. And that's life to life. Mm-hmm. So well, either way. Yeah, it's triumphal procession. Yeah, even if they say no and they never come to faith, you you've been used by God to show God's mercy because God is is reaching out to these people still and saying, "Look, I I exist and and you need me in your life." And even if they they are hardened and they never come to faith, they they will be shown at the ju- at the judgment at Christ's judgment, they'll be shown, look, you had this opportunity, and you chose not to. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to read another passage from John 10. Uh, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to find it here. Uh, we're going to be talking about John 10 absolutely when we talk about limited atonement, but, so we'll be going back to it, but I'm going to read one part of it as we talk about election. Uh, let's see here. Just bear with me for a moment. Let's start in verse 16. And I have other sheep. Listen to this. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up. No one takes it up from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So, and there's more that Jesus says, and maybe I'm missing the big one that I want to talk about. But this idea that, I have sheep that are not yet of part of this fold. So those are elect. There's 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 certain sheep right now in your life, in our lives, on this earth, that are that they are foreknown, they have been predestined, and they're waiting for God to bring them a messenger. And the messenger will, sh- will surely come if they are an elect. And when they hear Jesus' voice, they will respond, and they will come into, like he says, and they will listen to my voice. So when Jesus finally calls them, we hear we we've talked about this call. He calls them when they when Jesus finally calls them, they will come into the fold, which is a symbol for for his his body, his his church, his, his you know into his family, and it's going to happen. So there's other there's there's lost sheep out there, and that that's maybe how you should think about evangelism. There's lost sheep, and I get to be—I have the privilege to be—to be one of those people that gets to go find them. Right. I get to go find these lost sheep. I'm not making new sheep. I'm finding lost sheep. It's not up to me to convince somebody to become a sheep. They are—they are a sheep. They're just lost right now, mm-hmm. and they need to be found. And they're found with the preaching of the gospel. Yeah. And that's why we preach the gospel with boldness, whether we're being persecuted, whether whether people hate us for it. Because when we preach it, lost sheep will be found. That's the point. It's the means that God has ordained. 
and he's not gonna God's not gonna bring about what he's he's ordained to bring about apart from the means he's ordained to bring them about. Mm-hmm. And that's the same with prayer. God has ordained that prayer is one of those means whereby he brings about his sovereign will. He's ordained our prayer. He's ordained that we be prayerful people and that he would respond according to our prayers. So we pray. And he's ordained evangelism, evangelism to be a part of that as well. So we evangelize. It makes sense. <laughs> it yep. really does. I mean, and it's pretty clearly stated in Romans 10. So we need to be an evangelizing people. Without a doubt, we need to be evangelizing. And it's a, it should be a joy. You should look... You, and I, I, I know evangelism is hard. I know it's hard. Because I remember I was a sophomore at... NDSU, I had never yet, I had done, probably done some evangelism without myself even knowing that I was doing evangelism in high school and stuff when I was a believer. But I had never done like what you would call initiative evangelism where you're going up to somebody you don't know <laughs> with the intent of sharing the gospel with them. And the guy that was discipling me, he said, hey, we're going evangelism, evangelizing today. And I about like died. Like, you know, the tingling in your armpit feeling. You're just like so uncomfortable. You want to crawl in your skin. I, I And I'm introverted. And I hate meeting new people, <laughs> which is so <laughs> ironic, isn't it? That now I, I, I'm called to the life of an evangelist. Like pretty ironic how God works in that way. Uh, but again, it's not my own doing. It's, it's God's gifts in me, God empowering me. But... The more I started to do it, the more I realized, hey, this isn't as bad as ma- people make it seem, or it's not as bad as my own th- mind made it seem, uh, and it's actually really fun and joyful. And then when you start to see people come to Christ, it's it's unbelievable. It's like no feeling you've ever experienced in your life. It's like pure ecstasy. Like you just took drugs, but it's mm-hmm. not drugs. It's right. it's it's living according to God's will, which is an amazing thing. It produces fullness of joy to mm-hmm. obey God's commands. And so evangelizing faithfully does produce joy in your life without a doubt. I guarantee you, try it. Um, yeah, we need more people evangelizing. And here's here's a couple things I want to say about evangelism. I want to beat this dead horse. You hear all the time, people say, well, I evangelize by inviting people to church. Or I evangelize by playing Christian music music at work, or I evangelize by uh, by being hospitable and inviting people into my home and cooking them dinner. Those are all great things. Amen. Do those things, but don't call them evangelism because you think that by redefining evangelism now you're obeying this command to evangelize. It's a scapegoat. You're trying to you're trying to get out of doing what you know evangelism really is, and that is sharing the gospel message. Being hospitable and inviting people over to your house and cooking them dinner and serving them is a fantastic thing. That's called hospitality and service. It's a good thing and it's pleasing to the Lord. But it's not evangelism. Now if you're inviting them over and then during that time of dinner and being hospitable, you do share the gospel message. That sharing of the gospel message is evangelism. So, yes, evangelism can be paired often with service, acts of service and hospitality. And maybe you do invite somebody to church uh, and then your pastor shares the gospel. Your pastor would be doing the evangelism there, not you. So, 
Well, but it's still an important exactly. It's still an important role. It's so exactly. Yeah. So I'm not saying don't invite people to church. Absolutely, invite everybody you can to church. But but people tend to think that they're checking the box of evangelism by simply inviting people to mm-hmm. things. And that's not the case. There is there comes to be a time, and the capacity for people is different. Yep. We're not expecting people to go share their faith every single day. Maybe not necessarily every single week. And evangelism can look differently with different situations. So for some, sometimes evangelism really is going up to somebody you've never met before, and sharing the gospel like literally within the first conversation that you ha- that you have with them. And I've done that with hundreds of people, and I've seen people come to faith. By having just met them 20 minutes before that. Literally, I've seen it. True, authentic conversion. I've seen it. And and then there's other evangelism, which is a really slow process. Yeah. Where this is more specifically family members, too. Like, right. your family is going to be a, a long, slow process of... Because these are people you, you, for the most part, can count on seeing every day. And co-workers. Mm-hmm. Those are people that often it's a, it's a slower a slower gospel presentation where you you share certain things at a slower pace uh, and and that's still evangelism right we're not advocating you know preaching down people's throats nor street preaching you know that's mm-hmm. a method in a way for a time and maybe in certain circumstances street preaching is very effective it's a method mm-hmm. the gospel message doesn't change the methods can change right uh, but eventually evangelism boils down to the sharing, the preaching right. of the gospel. Right. And it could be written too. You know, obviously we know that. Mm-hmm. So written, spoken, <laughs> yep. transferred mentally. No, the thing <laughs> it is, doesn't we, work. <laughs> we have to preach the gospel to the people that we encounter so that they can believe and then call in the name of Jesus. Absolutely. I mean, we have. Do we want to finish up Romans ten or? Yeah, I think we're pretty close to the end yeah. of Romans ten. So. Yeah, there's some Old Testament um, quotations and stuff. So we're in. Um, uh, let me see. Where did we leave off? Did we leave off seventeen? I think we did. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Uh, so then Paul says, "But I ask, have they not heard? Uh, indeed, they have. For." Their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. So, so Paul is saying, look, the gospel has gone out, yeah, and it is going to go out, right? It, it's going to reach all over the earth. So then he says in verse nineteen, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So um, Paul is going back to Israel here, Mm -hmm. and he's saying, well, so you might say, well, then did Israel miss the boat? Did did they just not get this message of the gospel? And uh, he says, actually, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Because uh, Moses writes, I will make you, Israel, jealous of those who are not a nation. So everybody who's not an Israelite. Right. And with a foolish nation or, you know, nations, I will make you angry. So what Paul or what Moses is is saying here is that, um, you know, well, really what God is saying to Moses here is that, look, Israel, 
you're going to be jealous because other people have a relationship with your God and you don't. Right. Uh, people who are foolish, who weren't given the law and the prophets. Right. Um, who didn't have this special revelation that you have, which Paul talks about extensively in uh, Romans chapter 2. So then uh, Paul in chapter or in verse 20, uh, he quotes Isaiah. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Yeah. So uh, right there, you know, exactly what you talked about earlier. Yeah. It's not on us at all. No. We did not seek God because we can't seek God. Kind of. And God showed himself to those who didn't even ask for him. Right. So, again, this is all about election, and here it is again. Yeah. And then uh, verse 21 to close out chapter 10, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Right. And that's... That's a statement about Israel's disbelief, which you can read about all throughout the Old Testament. Absolutely. And yep. even in the four Gospels, of course. Right. So let's we're going to wrap up this discussion with the question, because I, I, we haven't even talked about it yet, but I said we were going to answer it in this episode, so we might as well answer it. What about those who go through this life and never hear the Gospel? What about them? Because we all have in our minds this idea that there's like an Amazonian tribe in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, or there's tribes in Papua New Guinea or Indonesia or certain places that are very remote that have never heard the gospel. And that's certainly true. There, There's quite sure. a, there's thousands of people groups currently, and we have pretty good statistics on it that we know are unreached, unreached mm-hmm. people groups. And we, we, we know where they are. And, and I don't know, maybe it was a year ago or two years ago, a guy actually went to one of those tribes and got killed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the whole world thought, well, does he have the right to go to a people that don't want to be tainted by the outside world? And but he was trying to obey the call mm-hmm. to go to every nation, tongue, tribe, and nation. But he eventually he got killed by them because um, they kill outsiders. Yep. And God will break that barrier down. Oh, the he Scripture will. promises exactly that somebody, at least one person, right from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be saved. Yeah, and that's a pretty bold promise. If it was up to human will to choose mm-hmm. him, that's a very bold promise uh, to make. If right. God isn't orchestrating, only it. only a, the only answer to that is election. Exactly, the only answer. Mm-hmm. It's the only one thing that makes sense. So the question is, we do know. That there's many people, billions of people actually, especially in China and these very heavily Muslim uh, ruled countries that never that they they will go through this life without ever hearing the gospel nor ever hearing the name of Jesus. And I was I was in China and I was in on some campuses in Beijing, and we were doing what was called fast paced evangelism, where we just go up to students very quickly and ask them a couple questions right away, like. Uh, do you know, like the first question really can be sometimes, do you know any Christians on this campus? And, you know, some of them understand English well, some of them don't. So sometimes they didn't really understand what you meant by Christian. Uh, and so you would clarify, do you know anybody who knows or follows Jesus? And they go, no. And you go, and we go, do you know who Jesus is? Have you, have you heard the name Jesus before? No. And that was the case from the majority of people we talked to. They had never even heard of the name Jesus. They never heard about him. And then I come, I was probably initiated with 30, 40 people by this point in this day and finally come across this guy 
asked him the same question. Do you know any Christians on this campus? Didn't know what I meant. I said, I clarified, do you know anybody that knows Jesus? He goes, Jesus. And I go, yeah, Jesus. He goes, I want to know about Jesus. I go, you want to know about Jesus? I go, he goes, yes. I go, can I tell you about him right now? He goes, yes. I'm like, can we go sit over on this bench? He goes, yes. We go sit over on the bench. I share the gospel with him. He comes to faith. Amazing. Turns out that he had heard the name of Jesus from American television and had been waiting for somebody to come and tell him about it. And I was that guy. Mm-hmm. Not by anything. I was just a bumbling idiot on this campus. Don't speak a lick of Mandarin. Looking like an idiot. <laughs> asking a pretty simple question. Do you know anybody who knows Jesus? And that guy had been prepped to accept Christ. And he was, it's like an amazing story. And some of the missionaries there that were there full time met with him and said that he was from the most remote and unreached providence of all of China. And that he wanted to go back and bring the gospel to his people. Like that is unbelievable. And that's sovereign control. Mm -hmm. That I would be there at that place in time. And that our paths would cross of a city of... 20 billion people. Like, unreal divine orchestration. Nonetheless, though, there are certain people, though, Mm -hmm. that don't hear the name of Jesus. So is that not unjust of God to send them to hell if they don't have the opportunity? No, it's it's not unjust of God at all, and we know that from Romans 1. So the the famous two passages that we talked about in the— in the very first yeah. podcast, Romans 1, 16 and 17. So, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But Paul goes on here to say in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their righteousness suppress the truth. Unrighteousness suppress the truth. Yeah. (laughs) Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish thoughts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, I mean, we could have a whole long uh, discussion about these passages in Romans 1 and, and the next five or six after that. But the, the point is, for they are without excuse because of creation. Right. And th- this concept, creation itself, is, called, is, is what theologians call general revelation. Right. Where God reveals himself to us through the creation. And uh, as Romans 1 here says, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Clearly. By everyone. By everyone. By, by everyone. Everyone is without excuse. Right. Because we can look out at the world 
Yep. And we can clearly perceive these things that have been made yes. by the power of God. Right. And may, maybe people don't believe that they were made by the power of God, but the truth is that God made them. Yeah, the thing is, it's like deep down they know, and that's the point. They have this knowledge. It's deep down, but it's suppressed. Right. And so this is the interesting thing about evangelism. We'll get on. A, we'll get into discussion on this some other time called presuppositional apologetics. Really, and it's kind of. Uh, Part of presuppositional apologetics is this idea that you are you know that a person that you're talking to who's a non-believer is suppressing this knowledge of their creator. So you know they know deep down that there is a God, and you're you're kidding at that. You're trying to press into that that suppressed knowledge that deep down you know God exists. It's undeniable. It's easily perceived. You're without excuse. So that is one reason why people you know the question is well do they go to hell? Do the people who don't hear the gospel go to hell? Yes, they do to go to hell. They're guilty of suppressing this truth. They're guilty of sin. They're also guilty of their inherited guilt from Adam, which is another discussion from Romans right. 5. A lot in Romans to talk about. <laughs> uh, another thing, too, though, is here's the deal. If they're not an elect, whether they hear the gospel zero times or a hundred times, they're always going to reject it in unrighteousness. Right. Always. So it really gets down to it does not matter. If they're not mm-hmm. an elect, whether they don't hear it at all or hear it more than anybody has ever heard it before, unless they're regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, they're never going to accept it. They're never going to confess that Jesus is Lord. They're not going to because they're going to want to still live for this, their own selfish gain. Right. So the point goes, though, that if somebody is an elect, they will be brought the gospel. Right. And that's something we can rely on. That, right. That, like that gentleman in China right. that, that you talked about. Exactly. I mean, so he had his whole life to look out at the creation right. and wonder and be like, who, where did this come from? Right. Who made this? If there's a God, I, I want to know him. And then he hears about Jesus on the TV and, and has this interest. Right. And then suddenly some random evangelist shows up face to face with him yep. and says— do you know Jesus? And he's like, well, I'd sure like to. Right. That That is exactly how this works. It's exactly how it works. God is orchestrating it. And I just like we don't I can't pretend and understand exactly how God is guiding my steps or guiding everybody's steps to cross our paths in this in this amazing redemptive plan. But he is he's sovereign to do it and he is doing it. So mm-hmm. it's really amazing. The sovereignty of God is an amazing thing to trust and believe in. Right. So amazing. And then you can look at the most atrocious things that happen on this earth, and you can go, God is working through this evil to bring about good. Right. He's working. He's doing things. He's guy. He's 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 working in ways. And he doesn't even not say that in Habakkuk. I'm doing things that you would not even understand, mm-hmm. like that would blow your minds, basically, yep. and to make your ears tingle if you understood what I was really doing yep. behind the scenes. That's the case. Probably every day, we're yeah. so small and we're so limited. You know, I basically know what's going on right now in just this room. <laughs> That's about right. it. I really don't know much. <laughs> yep. And there's a whole world of things going on that I have no idea, and God's working in all of it. That's pretty crazy. And I'm glad He's sovereign over it. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm glad He's sovereign over it. I'm gonna. Well, we're already at hour fifteen, but I wanted to talk about this. I was going to talk about it at the very beginning. And I forgot, but now I remembered. 
<laughs> Go for it. And it's this, I think what we're going to want to do, if you haven't noticed, by the way, this is a big day because we're on episode number seven and we finally officially got some real podcast microphones. So maybe if you've <laughs> been is. listening and you go, you know, their audio is kind of weird. I can hear everything the dog's doing. I can hear these echoings. The, the, you know, when Adam talks, it kind of like comes up heavy in my in my left earbud. And when a- Sam talks, it comes, comes up heavy in my ra- right earbud. You know, this kind of weird thing. And so we've been working with a microphone that's, it's it's a high quality microphone, but it's not made for podcasts. Um, but now we officially got some podcasting microphones. So hopefully that means that you've noticed a difference in the audio quality. So this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think one thing that we're maybe going to want to do for the rest of the podcast is maybe just do some current events uh, from a Christian perspective going on in the world. And one of those things that we want to talk about today is there was an article put out by Fox News today. And the article literally, it says this. This is the title. Maybe you've seen it. Netflix comedy sees one million petition for its removal for offending Christians with depiction of Jesus as gay. Says a Netflix Christmas special from a Brazil-based YouTube comedy group offended more than a million Christians by depicting Jesus as gay. The film premiered on Netflix Brazil on December 3rd and has since sparked a ton of controversy online for its politically incorrect satire that paints Jesus as a closeted homosexual on Christmas. As of Friday morning, 1.34 million people signed a petition calling on Netflix to do something about the 46-minute holiday special after it seriously offended many Christian viewers. The First Temptation of Christ, which is what it's called, the First Temptation of Christ, sees Jesus and a friend named Orlando arrive at Mary and Joseph's house where they've thrown a birthday party for their son. According to the New York Daily News, Jesus attempts to downplay his relationship with Orlando, who constantly hints that they are more than just friends. Blah, 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 blah. And, like... Here's the deal. You can see where they're coming from. Bear with me here. If Christianity isn't true, then sure, let's make fun of the God of Christianity. But if Christianity is true and you're going to slander and really blaspheme against the holiest God of the universe— what you are actually doing is storing up the most incredible wrath for yourself that could ever be imagined. And it's somewhat terrifying to try to conceive of the wrath in store for these these makers of this show. And they are they're 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 banking on the fact that Christianity isn't true. And they better hope it's not, but it is true. So honestly, what they're doing is they're storing up more wrath than could ever be conceived. To paint the God of the universe, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, as a homosexual. It's, it's as perverse as it gets. And, and certainly, if, if, if a religion is false, there is grounds for mockery. For instance... Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal, Baal or Baal or whatever it's, his name is called on the mount. When he says, maybe your God is taking a crap. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's asleep because he's a fake God. He doesn't exist. But when it comes to the true God, the, whole, the God who is holy and real, there's no tolerance for such perversion. There's no tolerance for such wickedness. There will be wrath and, and judgment. 
and that's just crazy that we're at a point in our lives where this is happening. Like, what do you think about it, Adam? Like, I just like. Well, I think that um, we need to remember how much these people need repentance right. and forgiveness. Um, people will mock God. Shoot, even believers get angry and mock God. Yeah. And we need to understand uh, that God is so far above us all. I mean, we've spent weeks talking about the sovereignty of God. Right. Uh, and Philippians 2 says that God the Father highly exalted Jesus Christ and gave him a name that's above every name. Yeah. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Right. So certainly believers... Um, do that now, and they will do it in the future. They will do it at the judgment. Right. And, uh, but believers will do it in joy. Yep. It'll be their delight. Uh, yep. And, and, you know, as, as we read, there will be no shame for believers when they stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment. Uh, they, they will, they will kneel before Jesus Christ. Uh, the book of Revelation tells us that, uh, Jesus will find their name in the book of life, and they will be ushered into eternity. Right. But for those who don't believe, right, they will give an account for all of their actions. Right. And certainly, I mean, if this doesn't motivate us to evangelize, right. when we see this kind of sin happening, right, we need to remember that they, if they don't become saved, they will give an account to Jesus Christ for that action that they just yep, did, and they'll and they'll face judgment for it. Yeah, and the 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 amazing thing though is is that even in such atrocious sin, the power of the cross can cover it. Yep, like it could very well be that one of these m- people that was part of the production of this this atrocious video is an elect, and later on. They will hear the true gospel and they will come to repent and believe because they were an elect. Mm-hmm. And it will they will discover that all this wicked sin that they did was actually put on Christ 2,000 years ago and punished. Yeah. And then imagine the power of that testimony. The power of that. Like, my wicked sin where I painted Jesus, my Savior, as a homosexual, as a sinner as I am, he actually took that sin. And paid for it mm-hmm. on the cross. I mean, you know, another current How event ironic thing, is that? Right. I mean, it's another thing that's happening in current events that's kind of just right along with that is Kanye West just recently publicly declared that, that he's a believer in Jesus Christ. Right. Imagine the power of the testimony that right. this man Which can have. Which is a very interesting topic. They're, right. They're, uh, I haven't looked into it. Yeah, but I've looked into it a little bit, and um, there's just a lot of—we've got to be slow— uh, Apologia Radio interviewed his his what would be considered his pastor, who mm-hmm. was a very good pastor. He's uh, the a master seminary grad, MacArthur okay. Seminary grad, yeah. which is great. Um, so the the problem is is like because Kanye is such is a guy that is in such the spotlight, we can tend to make quick judgments of his salvation because we see. His infants, his his years of inf- infancy mm-hmm. in the, in the faith, on full display for all to see. And if we if we had a microscope on us when we were a baby oh Christians, my the things that 
my goodness. So we got to be slow. We got to be slow to pass judgment. Like, oh, he did this? Like, there's no way if he's a Christian if he did this. So, well, how were you acting when you were a toddler? Right. Pretty dumb. So that's one side of it. But the other side of it is, too, is just, you know, we still do got to be patient with. Mm-hmm. There needs to be good evidence and time will tell. Right. But it is amazing. Though. Right. I mean, just the, the power of the testimony. Right. If, if his conversion is true. He would and... be like a modern day Paul. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we're going to stop it there because we're. This is the longest episode we've had so far, but hey, we like to talk. That's right. <laughs> but uh, I hope you enjoyed this. And uh, what do you think? What do you think, Adam? Do you think we ended there for election and move on to limited atonement? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll leave the audience with again. Romans eleven goes right back to election, but it's so rich with eschatology. Yeah, that maybe we just keep it for an eschatology series I, I would agree yeah, yeah i think so too so yeah we'll keep that that we'll wrap that up for election and we didn't exhaust we didn't we did not exhaust the topic of election no by any means not at all nor the verses at all not even close there's so much more to be learned but the cool things about these about the doctrines of grace is they're logically cohesive with each other so as we start to talk about limited atonement uh irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints some of the questions you still may be having about election might be answered in those discussions right. because they overlap in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so hold up for those. Next week we will be talking about the L, limited atonement, which is <laughs> if any of the five points of Calvinism is most widely debated, even among confessing Calvinists, it is this one, limited atonement. Yeah. So this should be a pretty good discussion. <laughs> so hopefully if you're a four-point Calvinist, maybe we can convince you to be a five-pointer. <laughs> happened to me recently. So. <laughs> so anyway, hope you learned something today. But thanks for listening. <laughs>